I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, Technical Interviews with Prominent Women in Tech. Learning from data is something that is being used to improve processes across different industries. Kelly Rivoir, engineering manager at Stripe, explained how machine learning is used for payment processing applications. We talked about what machine learning is and about Stripe's real-time machine learning-based system used to evaluate user risk. Kelly also explained the process of deploying machine learning systems to production and the challenges. Before we continue with the interview, I wanted to tell you that I launched a new podcast. It's called The 5-Minute Mentor. In this podcast, you'll hear advice from prominent engineers, entrepreneurs, authors, and more in five minutes or less. Check it out by going to mentors.fm or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts by searching 5-Minute Mentor. Thank you. I'm here at Stripe in San Francisco with Kelly Rivoir, engineering manager at Stripe. Kelly, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I'm really excited to chat. And today we're going to talk about machine learning, systems that use it, and also about Stripe. I want to begin with that first. Stripe is a company that's building software solutions to make receiving and making payments really simple and easier for businesses. Can you explain in more detail what Stripe is doing and what they're focused on as a company. Yeah. So Stripe provides sort of like the, you can think of it almost as economic infrastructure for online payments. When I started here six or so years ago, our main part of that mission was making it just really easy for businesses to accept payments. We've layered a lot of things on top of and around that that sort of support this mission of like growing the GDP of the internet. So we have products for platforms like Stripe Connect. Um, that make it easy for marketplaces to move money around the way they might want, as well as complementary, more software-oriented products, things like Radar, our fraud product, which we may end up talking about some, or um, Sigma, our product for kind of querying data. Yeah. So you said uh, it mainly started with this simplification of online payments, right? And from what I have looked, it's been made super simple to the extent that you just put some code on your website and you're good to go, right? Yeah, That was the original goal where, you know, I think our founders came from outside the U.S. and they found that they could start a business. But actually, the hard part was like figuring out, especially from outside the U.S., like how to get online payments working. Yeah. And there's this whole wide and interesting problem space around that that we've kind of dug into. Around this payment space, other areas started to you know enhance this main mission, right, is what it sounds like. Yeah. Okay. So in general, I get the sense that Stripe is one of the companies that is helping other businesses focus on their strengths and their area of their product versus having to figure out, all right, we're selling this, but we need to build, you know, the payment pipeline. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you can focus on the unique part of your business that nobody else has to do, and you don't need a giant payments team. You don't need a giant fraud team. Maybe you don't need a big reporting team. You can kind of be much more nimble and focused on the problem that you're trying to solve and not all of these other problems. Specifically at Stripe, you work in machine learning and infrastructure I want to begin first with a quick recap on machine learning. We've done several shows about it, but it's always good, you know, to get some context again about this. Can you explain what machine learning is? Yeah. So in machine learning, um, you're generally taking, you know, some data you have, some collection of facts that you've observed in the past and 
trying to do something kind of on a go forward basis. Like examples that we deal with a lot are things that you might call prediction or classification, where you might be trying to say, in the case of radar or fraud product, like, you know, given all of these historical charges and payments that have happened across Stripe, what's the probability that this incoming charge right now is fraudulent? And then, you know, perhaps I can then apply some thresholds and say, do I think this is good? Do I think this is bad? Is it kind of like ambiguous? And maybe you want someone on your team to take a look at it. Um, so that's kind of an example of ML that we do at Stripe. Mm-hmm. And what could that prevent? For example, why would we need to, you know, get some insight of, cool, with this probability, this is fraudulent? Like, what is the value for that? Yeah, that's a good question. So let's say I'm running like a t-shirt business and I am collecting internet payments. So anyone can kind of you know, make an order and I'll ship them the t-shirt. So if I have a fraudulent customer, what's going to happen is I'm going to mail them the t-shirt and then the person whose credit card or whatever the payment method it is that that actually belongs to will file a dispute with their credit card company and say like, I didn't make that transaction. And then I'm going to lose that shirt basically and I may have to pay some additional fees and it's just going to be like a lot of hassle for me. So if I could just have not taken that payment to begin with, that would save me a lot of time and effort. Mm -hmm. And that's something that Stripe and Stripe Radar can help with. And you talked about how machine learning can be used for prediction, like predicting if a transaction is fraudulent and also classification. In general, can you talk about what a machine learning model is? What does it encompass? Yeah, so there's a lot of different ways you can think about different types of machine learning models. Honing in on that example, basically what we would do is first kind of generate features. So that could be some of the things for that transaction about the charge, like what country was the credit card issued in, or like what is the amount of the charge. But it might also collect, in that example, data from kind of across Stripe's transaction history. So maybe Mm -hmm. how many different countries has this card been used from in the past day? And those will be kind of the inputs to our machine learning model. So a lot of the work for machine learning is kind of like creating that thing where kind of each charge or observation will be like a row in a matrix and you're kind of preparing that input matrix. And then from there, your task is to apply or evaluate the model. So kind of given that input set of features, like what is the output? And usually that's something that you pre-train based on kind of your historical data. And from your experience in terms of this feature part, What are some of the ways in which you can decide, oh, a country is going to be a feature? Yeah, that's a really interesting question that we spent a lot of time on. You can do it a few different ways. Like one thing you can do is sort of look at your experience, especially if you have deep domain expertise in the problem. So for example, you know, we're very lucky to have like a good risk team and they know a lot about fraud or risk. And also, I think if you work a lot in the domain yourself, you tend to acquire some of that expertise by yourself because you kind of inspect Um, examples as part of your development flow. So sometimes you can get ideas from that or you can look at like of the things we've missed in the past that we wish we had caught, what are some of the commonalities? You can also kind of do this more on the algorithmic side where you just kind of try out different combinations of things together in almost an algorithmic way or with deep learning where you're kind of like trying to get the model to learn some of that itself. Okay. So I think people will take kind of combinations of all these approaches, like all of them work some and no one is sort of necessarily right by itself. Do you know if this type of problem was being explored before machine learning? Like, was there a manual way of... Yeah. So a lot of people still, even like some of the products that are existing fraud solutions on the market prior to Stripe are more rule-based. 
And a lot of people employ combinations of rules and models. And the rule gives you a lot of power at first. It's easy to get started, but you can also see where it falters. So imagine that I make like a bad transaction on your account with you know, my email address. Well, you can just ban my email. That's kind of like a rule, right? But then when I add plus one to my email address, like your rule doesn't work anymore. Yeah. So the rule is a good way to get somewhere, but the models often have a lot more power and a lot more ability to generalize beyond a rule or a set of rules. You mentioned earlier that you've been at Stripe for, for about six years, and particularly in your early days, you worked on building the company's first real-time machine learning-based evaluation of user risk. Can you explain what user risk means? Yeah. So when someone signs up for Stripe, we want them to be able to get going as quickly as possible. But we also kind of need to evaluate on a few different axes whether there might be some kind of risk in taking them on as a user. So that could be things like, oh, this is just in some way a bad user, but it can be more nuanced than that. For example, we have um, terms of service on our website, so we can't support businesses selling everything. So for example, you can't sell illegal drugs on Stripe. And so that's something that we want to kind of to be able to detect and that we would identify as one kind of like possible risk from users. Okay. So this is about the the users that are that want to onboard and, you know, use Stripe as a payment. Yeah. And this is very similar in a lot of ways to the problem we were talking about in Radar. It's just um, kind of classifying a different entity, but a lot of the approach in some ways is similar, and we were able to share a lot between these different problems. Is there another characteristic in addition to like the types of products they sell? Are there other types of you know users? So there are a lot of ways, I guess, you could featureize your user set in a way. So okay. what are you selling is certainly one way. And for the problem where you're trying to detect someone selling something you can't support, that's perhaps like a particularly important set of features. Mm -hmm. You can also look at things like for the product around, if you're interested in more like kind of like a credit risk problem, like how do they deliver the products? You can also look at things just like what are the transactions or what are the properties of those? And in case there's anything that, you know, would be something that a model would flag or a rule would flag. So I think in that way, it's very similar to what we talked about with Radar, where you would look at both the individual transaction as well as these kind of like network patterns, leveraging the fact that we have a fair amount of traffic that runs through Stripe at this point. One of the characteristics of this system that you worked on is that is real time. What does this mean in the sense of a machine learning system being real time? That's a good question. And I think you can also separate into a few different pieces. So a lot of times someone may score their model in real time, but they may be using batch features that were pre-computed and that are a day old. For us, especially for these kind of risk-based decisions, it's we think it's pretty important to have the latest information. For radar, it's particularly important because it's in the charge flow that we want to be doing this evaluation. For example, if you're a business and you sell some kind of digital good, you're going to give that away probably immediately after the user completes the transaction. So if you want to know that you shouldn't allow that transaction through, you kind of need to know that now. You can't get an email the next day that says, like, hey, you shouldn't have taken that transaction. Or if you sell a physical thing, like, hey, you shouldn't have shipped that expensive item. It's too late. Mm -hmm. So by real time, it means when do you get the response back from the model? Or is it also more about in real time the model is being updated? That's a good question. We often kind of think about both of those. Like in some cases, you may not need your predictions very often. Maybe it's some internal analytics you're running and just getting an email. When a batch job runs every day is fine. 
And then you can also say, do my features need to be up to date or can they lag? Usually when we talk about real time, we're saying that both of those are evaluated now. So, you know, collect the latest features, put those in the model, evaluate the model now and give me the results. Sometimes that might be real time, but asynchronous, where it's going to be some type of callback that you get, but you get it pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it'll be more synchronous, like the case of radar, where in the charge flow, you're going to get back an answer of should I accept this or not, or maybe it will you know, depending on the thresholds applied, maybe it will just automatically be blocked or not. Mm -hmm. One of the things you mentioned is score the model. What does score the model mean? So scoring the model means you take your inputs and then you basically apply almost like the algorithm that you've trained, um, and then you generate the output, which oftentimes, for the examples we're talking about, that's basically you get a number. So you kind of create this matrix of your features, and then you get out, here's the probability of fraud. We're talking about real-time ML systems. What is the other way of having an ML system that the non-real-time? Can you talk about some of the differences in terms of how they're run or how they're built? Yeah, that's a, a nuanced and interesting question. So in the case where you're doing everything in batch and maybe just once a day or once a week, you kind of run this pipeline end-to-end, -end. that tends to be a less complex system. When you look at things in real time, sometimes, oftentimes, people start doing things differently between how they train the model offline and how they score it online. And that gets you into a range of interesting problems where if you're doing things differently, like how do you know that they're going to produce the same results? And so we spent a lot of time in that area in different ways. Um, for features, we've made a feature framework where we can write the business logic of the feature once and then compile it to sort of run in these different environments of real time or batch, but know that the feature logic is the same and be able to write tests for that. Um, you can do the same thing, say the same thing for the model. Sometimes people will train a model and score it in like different languages or different environments. And so we've built like end-to-end -end tests to make sure that the scores are going to be the same in both those environments if we're doing different things for them. So I think that ends up being a really, really interesting question that um, people have to confront. When would we want to use a real-time ML system versus a non-real-time? Most people generally prefer, you know, now is almost always preferable in some sense, but it ends up being this complexity trade-off where if you don't really need your result, you know, if you can wait a day or whatever it is, then it, it may be less work and simpler. But for a lot of applications, increasingly things are, you know, moving further and further toward online in real time. Okay, so you're saying we're moving more toward having them be real time? I think if you think about like where the internet economy and kind of all of the internet is going, everyone increasingly wants things now and they don't want to wait for things. So I think more of the technology is driving that way also. And in other parts as well, like I think if you look at data infrastructure systems more broadly, there's been a lot of development in like streaming systems in the past handful of years. So we're talking about having a real-time ML system and how these you know, are becoming more preferable in terms of the process of updating the system constantly and getting into production. Can you explain sort of the steps? What does it take for to start from a model and then you know, deploying it to the system that the users end up using? Totally. And so for us, we would also separate it a little bit into the feature set and the model. So taking the part you mentioned first for the model, um, we may train the model offline, but like you said, we want to have some continuous automated way to get new models into production. 
And so that's something we've built different evaluation systems around where, you know, you can set up some kind of nightly or weekly, whatever you want, retraining of the model and then declare your conditions for when you would ship a new model. What does it mean to be better or worse, Um, especially because you're usually using a couple of competing metrics together and then you can automatically kind of see that, yes, this is better and start rolling it out. And similarly on the feature side, we want to make sure that we make any changes safely. So we try and do things in an additive, careful way as well. Mm-hmm. What is an, an example of a metric that can be used to to know if, if our model is better or worse? People use a few different sets of metrics. Like in biology, often people use things like sensitivity and specificity. Mm-hmm. A lot of folks in kind of our type of industry, we tend to use precision and recall where precision is um, sort of the metric of, you know, if my model flags 10 things as bad, how many of them are actually bad? And recall is sort of the complement to that mm-hmm. of, of all the bad things out there, how many am I catching? Okay. And then you can come up with different conditions on those. There are some, like there's like an F score that is defined as a combination of them. But for your application, it's important to know what your trade-offs are of you know which one you kind of want to prioritize or how you want to prioritize the combination. So you're saying the metric you use can depend on the nature of what the model is, you know, classifying or predicting. Right. So in the case of fraud, you know, we don't want a lot of bad charges to go through, but it would probably be even worse if we blocked all of some businesses charges. Yeah. Because that's unrecoverable. So depending on the costs of false positives or negatives, you might adjust your decisions um, to consider the business problem. Also, I think in the medical spaces where I've seen where people talk about the metric you're tracking matters, you know, if you're detecting cancer, you you certainly don't want. Yes. Yeah. And one of the nice things about having automated evaluation is that if you want to ship a model automatically, it forces you to declare in some clear way what your evaluation criteria are. I think early in machine and learning model development, often people want to look at a curve and kind of think about it. And the process for shipping a model becomes very complicated because you're sort of manually looking at it each time and deciding what to do. And so if you have some system that's going to do that in an automated way, well, you have to kind of program it and tell it what to do. So it it forces you to kind of get your house in order on that, which is Mm -hmm. nice. In other areas of software development, we normally have different kind of environments where you add a new feature and then you deploy it to like a dev environment, then a test, then a, you know, pre-production. Is there a similar thing when developing machine learning models and systems? Absolutely. So for example, if we want to roll out a new model, we may first, you know, roll that out to some kind of different environment. Like you said, we may also use something equivalent to a feature flag that you would use in software development, where maybe Mm -hmm. you start out either scoring it in the background or scoring it on some small percentage, and then you make sure that the results and the distributions are what you expected before you just go straight to 100%. So I think you may need to implement it in a different way, but the same kind of good principles are often pretty applicable as well. Mm -hmm. Could there be a case where, because I know we talked about earlier how we have metrics defined and sort of based on that we decide if to move forward with the model or not, but could there be a case where we somehow start seeing the in production the new model we deployed is worse right and that's why one of the reasons why you want to have some established way to roll out the new model and make sure that it's giving you the results you want and Mm -hmm. in particular 
what we talked about, where sometimes people have differences in the code or the language or the systems for how they trained their model versus how they're scoring it. Those things can sometimes lead to bugs or things that cause these differences. It can also be the case that you have more like data science bugs, where maybe you used information from the future when training your model. So I, I think you know someone told me once in a different application that if you have like a sales CRM, people will just stop filling it out when they know they're not going to get the deal. And then that starts to look like it's a predictor. Okay. Um, so there can be a few different types of reasons why you might see something that's unexpected. And I think you have to be prepared for that and have the rollout and monitoring that let you handle that. In terms of tools and technologies, can you talk about you know some examples of programming languages or tools that can be used to, to build machine learning systems? Right. In the last handful of years, I think a lot of development on the training side has been in the Python ecosystem with libraries like PyTorch or TensorFlow. Um, and we certainly use a lot of those. I think also on the training side, increasingly people want to scale out and have different resources for how they do training. So we've moved almost all of our model training onto Kubernetes, where we can easily say this workload needs to be like a G on GPUs because we're training a deep learning model, or this one needs a high memory worker and we don't have to do a lot of work to make that happen. So I think on the modeling side, uh, a lot of people are finding that to be true. One of the tricky things is um, getting the right performance if you need it for these kind of critical real-time applications. And that's where you get a lot of people doing different things where maybe you're using the Python ecosystem for your training, but something else for scoring. And then you need to be kind of particularly careful that you're not like creating these differences that we talked about. Mm -hmm. And in the terms of getting models to production and deploying between different environments, are there also tools for that or is it mostly like in-house solutions? I think this is a really, really interesting question in the ecosystem now where there's been all this development on like different modeling libraries. But actually, when you talk to people in industry, what they spend their time on is mostly these things you talked about, where I think like, you know, people will draw this giant box of all the things you need to do to ship a machine learning model. And that algorithms piece is this tiny, tiny piece in the middle. A lot of companies are doing their own versions of things, including us for some things, partly because your ML infrastructure needs to sit on top of all your other infrastructure. So if that isn't the same as somewhere else, you may not be able to use the same pieces. I think there are more companies that are starting to try to open source what they've done. And there's also efforts like things like Kubeflow at Google. But I, I think this will be like a really interesting area over the next handful of years because it's so nascent compared to if you think about like developer workflows for Git or deploys or code or some of those aspects. Yeah, so you're saying the model is a small piece and some of those components are the source control and also DevOps or... Yeah, source control for models is an interesting question too and companies handle that differently as well. So I think all these things that people are used to doing for code have some kind of analog for machine learning, but there isn't as much a set of standard solutions um, in part because it builds on all these other things that may not be standardized. Before we finish, I want to talk more specifically about machine learning at Stripe. And what I want to understand from your experience is how can we find a machine learning use case? Like early on, we talk about user risk. So what does that look like? Is it a discussion with people or? That's a really interesting question. 
For us, I think what we found that worked was um, to start out with the things that really are just like critical business problems for us. So for our users, preventing fraud is a critical business problem. And for us, like understanding our users is a critical problem. As we developed the tools and platforms for those, though, we did also see other places where we could be applying those things that we'd already built. So for example, in our billing product, we have a feature we call Smart Dunning that retries failed subscription charges at the optimal time. Or we've tried out, um, in some cases, like in customer support workflows, maybe we can suggest parts of a resolution to someone answering a ticket. So I think more opportunities open up when you have the tools to do so, because the effort to try it out is much less. And that's what we've heard from folks working on different machine learning applications across the company is, hey, they had this idea. And if they had to build everything from scratch and they weren't sure how well it would work, they probably wouldn't have wanted to do it. But in some cases, we already had the platform and all the tools they needed. So it was it was much quicker to try it out and see, can I train a model that will be good enough that it will actually help with this thing? So you mentioned a lot of it is focused on the users and sort of what are the main things like, yeah, they certainly don't want fraudulent transactions. In terms of collaboration within um, the company, what are the different types of people that can you know, participate in this kind of discussions? Right. And that's something that's expanded over time for us too. In the earlier days of working on machine learning, we mostly had what we'd call machine learning engineers develop the applications end to end. And I think when you're small and you're doing something for the first time, you get a lot of leverage from having one person who can kind of do it all and see the whole problem space. So they can understand the business problem, figure out how do you formulate that as a machine learning problem, do all the machine learning work and roll it out in production. As the company gets bigger, you know, you get higher leverage from having a little bit more specialization. So we have a, a machine learning infrastructure platform team at this point that owns some of the common infrastructure. We do still have machine learning engineers um, who are pretty involved. In some cases, we work with data scientists as well who are less involved in um, the production engineering, but who are kind of the experts in um, more complicated statistics type work. And increasingly, we've also had some folks who are more just product engineers who don't necessarily have a lot of machine learning training um, be able to kind of take advantage of pieces of the platform that are more mature, maybe working with some of the other folks. So you mentioned data scientists. They are, have a lot more expertise in statistics. In terms of the machine learning engineer, do they also work in the models or is this more about you know the whole uh, infrastructure and platform that needs to be in place and they need to have some understanding of machine learning models and the different components. I think this varies a little bit depending on the company. For us, machine learning engineers are in some ways a little bit of unicorns where they're pretty broad and have some depth across the area. Okay. So they're generally, you know, the interview process we run is very similar for engineering to our standard software engineering roles, but then we also expect them to know a little bit at least about machine learning and typically to have some kind of production experience with machine learning systems. So it, they actually kind of are quite broad, whereas I think the data scientists that we work with are typically a little bit deeper in some of those areas, like, like statistics or maybe experimentation. Got it. Well, Kelly, thank you for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you. Thanks. This was fun.